Uh, but that's all good. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we had an, uh, an excellent day yesterday just uh, with our volunteers training day. Just, uh, over 50, almost 60 people just coming together, grappling with what does it mean to be a volunteer, a servant in what God is doing at Arana. And I just want to say thanks to everyone that attended. So good to see the energy and the passion of God's people serving in this place. Love it. So, so good. A few years ago, actually, um, probably a good 12 years ago, I was on holiday with uh, my family in a place called Mossel Bay. And um, decided one afternoon, there was this little hiking trail that I thought, oh, that's probably a good shortcut, um, because normally I took my uh, runners and I just ran along the road, and it was about a, a 5K run around the road from where we were staying to around the corner um, at, at Mossel Bay. Beautiful little run. But I thought that um, just looking at the is it escarpment, um, that it w- was probably half the distance. So I thought to myself, if I took the shortcut daily, I could spend a lot more time drinking coffee and enjoying the scenery. It was a beautiful lookout. So one afternoon, probably, probably at about 5.30, almost 6, I thought, I'm just going to take um, a quick run to go from where I was to um, the point that I get to. And I said to Melissa, listen, give me... Give me an hour, um, and uh, you can come and pick me up. She was heavily pregnant with Michaela, or Nicole at that point, not Michaela, got another daughter. <laughs> um, and as soon as I wanted to leave, Talita looked at me, and she said, Daddy, I want to go with. Talita was just over three years old at that time, and I said to her, you can't go. Um, this is, I don't even know what the, what the path looks like, and she said, I can. And I looked at her, and I said to her, if you go with, you need to promise me that you won't cry, and I'm not going to carry you. So she said, yes, that's fine. So took our stuff. Um, she had a little water bottle with that amount of water because it's going to be a 20-minute little walk. It ended being a nine-kilometer hike up and down, and it was chain ladders. And at one stage, she actually fell off the chain ladder through my legs, and I caught her, gashed her back. Um, it became dark this uh, one hour little trip became three and a half, almost four hours. <laughs> we didn't have a mobile phone with us. We, we were stuffed. <laughs> and the last kilometer, I looked at Talita and I said, remember, no crying and no carrying, but we've got to run. Uh, and she looked at me with, you're a bad dad, <laughs> kind of thing. And we had to run the last kilometer to meet Melise um, at the point where she was waiting for us, heavily pregnant, for the last two, three hours, <laughs> not knowing where we were. And I realized that day that shortcuts <laughs> aren't always shorter. Uh, I reckon every one of us has a story like that, where in some way, shape, or form, we decided that I'm just going to take a little shortcut, realizing that it mm, didn't work out well. And part of what I want to share this morning actually sits within the space that God doesn't always take us through the shortcuts in life. There's a very um, logical point from A to B, but have you experienced that sometimes God takes C, D, F, G, Z in order to move us from A to B? Anyone ever experienced something like that? So part of the Promise, Promises series, just to give you some, some uh, context, we started in the first week saying that God gave us some incredible promises. And part of the fact that God gave us these promises is seated in the fact that His faithfulness is beyond question. God is unquestionable. 
His character, His nature, and His love towards us is unquestionable. So when He promises, we can stand firm in the belief, the song that we sang, the scripture that Sam and Luke read this morning, stand firm in the statement saying that His promises are yes and amen. God doesn't promise us to tease us. It's not that kind of God. He doesn't give us a Bible with these consistent um, frequency of promises from beginning to end just to tease us into something. He's committed to His promises. So committed that in week two, we looked at the fact that um, He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross so that in Christ, every promise would be fulfilled. So that we don't have to read these promises thinking, um, what do I need to do to fulfill them? We read these promises realizing that in Christ, They've all been fulfilled. So we, we're reflecting on a portion of Scripture in Exodus that was actually the beginning, the, the point of reference of these promises, where God comes to the Israelites and says to them, um, say to the Israelites. Now this is important, because at that point they were in captivity 430 odd years. And that's a long time. Where they had promises... And a few things happened. They had some great seasons. Promises started with Abram, um, transcended to his family, came to Egypt. A lot of things happening. But at this point, they were in captivity 430 years. And this is the point where God says to the Israelites, I'm going to release you from captivity. Now, think about you sitting in a bad situation for four years. How bad is that? How difficult is that? These guys were sitting for 430 years. Slavery became a generational thing. It became embedded in the core of their society. They didn't remember the days where they weren't slaves anymore. The last few generations were all caught up in this identity of being slaves. So God comes to them and says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke. We spoke about that last, year, last week. And then he said, I will free you from, from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judge, judgment. And I will take you as my own people. I'll be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Spoke about four promises um, this week uh, on promise two, the promise of salvation. In our vision expression, it's the understanding that God invites us to a place where we can know him. The second one, the promise of deliverance, is coming to a point where we, um, where we can experience the reality of God setting us free internally, finding freedom in Christ. And in the next two weeks, we'll look at the promise of redemption and the promise of fulfillment. But this morning, this promise, I will free you from being slaves to them. So just think about the fact, God says, I'll take you out of Egypt so many people think that just being released from the situation will free you. God says, no, <laughs> that's not the full extent of the promise. Just taking you out of a bad situation is not going to free you as a person. I need to take you out, but then I need to free you as, as a person. I need to do something in you because the situation forced some levels of thinking that became entrenched in who you are. So the question is, why was it necessary to take them out of Egypt 
but then to still promise deliverance. Well, basically, it's because their thinking was messed up. They got stuck in their thoughts that they were still slaves. And just think about it. How many times have you been in a very difficult situation, whether it be relationally, financially, maybe a job situation, that after a while you are released out of that, you're not in that situation anymore, but guess what haunts you in your experience, in your thinking? It's the fact that you're out of the situation, but your thoughts keep going back to where you are. So there's a promise of salvation And as Christians, I think some of us still have this notion that even though I know that I'm saved, I've made a commitment, I've made a decision to follow God, we're still plagued by habits, addictions, and attitudes that still reflect our old way of life. Where we know there was a point of salvation, but entrenched deep in in our souls, there's still these things, our habits, our attitudes and our actions, sometimes even leading to addictions that keeps us in bondage. Now, the difference between salvation and deliverance is, firstly, salvation is instant. Deliverance is a process because it requires a level of the renewing of your mind. Salvation takes care of your eternity. (laughs) Deliverance determines your quality of life while you're still here on the planet. And that's probably one of the areas that I believe that so many people never progress through. We believe that God saved us, and then we want to ask the question, what can I do for Him? Not realizing that there's this inner turmoil that God needs to free you from, where freedom needs to be discovered from the inside. Um, Realizing that if you think of yourself and you think about yourself, the thoughts um, would be centered around me being free. So first promise, Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, um, Paul comes and he says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. He says, it is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast for, uh, about it. Salvation is a gift. So the first promise is grace. The second promise is how that grace is actually worked out through our lives. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. So the one is not works-based. The other one, Paul says, you've got to commit to this. You've got to commit to the fact that what happened to you at the point of salvation now needs to be reflected in what you exhibit through your life. So work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God, who, God is working where? God is working in you. That's an incredible promise that after the point of salvation, God's work doesn't stop. He's actually still busy, still working, still guiding you. For God is working in you, and this is such a great thing to to just consider. God's working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So there's this point where God worked for our salvation, and then there's this point where God is actually working out our salvation by giving us desires to work through. And it creates a tension. 
Because the big smash-up comes when my desires that still seeded around what happened to me in, um, in slavery clashes with the desires that God places in me. And suddenly there's tension. Paul speaks about it. He says there's the good and the bad, and I don't know where to go with this. So reading through the story of, of Exodus, um, actually such a surprising story. God promises the Israelites this point of salvation, saying, I'm going to take you out. If we read through that, after that event, raises, uh, Moses is in the scene, goes to the ten plagues. And then in Exodus 12, God says to the Israelites, you guys can go. I'm going to free you. So take your stuff and leave. But remember, it wasn't just a promise that I'm going to take you out of Egypt. There was a much bigger promise. The promise that God gave Abram, that there was a promised land. There was a specific geographical space that they believed that that was theirs. So in their minds, it would be uh, um, very natural and logical to think that God's promising us salvation. He's going to take us out of Egypt. And where is He going to take us? He's going to take us to the promised land. <laughs> but not. <laughs> Look at what Exodus 13 verse 17 says. He says, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory. So just think about it. I'm promising you salvation. There's the promised land. So I'm going to take you from A to B. That's logical. 430 years we've been slaves. God, can we just take a bit of a shortcut from where we are now to the place that we need to be. And guess what God does? doesn't take them that way. doesn't lead them there. It actually says God didn't take them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Now how many do you think of those Israelites would have thought, okay, this is this God, we knew about Him, we knew of Him, this Moses guy pitches and there's this ten plagues and suddenly um, we're released, um, uh, Pharaoh says, let us go. So they reckon it's about a million plus Jews, more or less. And every one of those Jews knew that the easiest way to get from here to there is just follow the path. How do you think they would have felt when Moses said, hey squad, we're going left. Just think, we, we think in very polished terms um, that everyone was just, yes, Moses, we'll follow you, it's all good, you go. How many of you, you would have just raised your hand and just said, hey, um, shortcut, <laughs> let's just get there. But God intentionally did not take them the shortcut. Why? Because He knew if they had to face the battle of the Philistines, they would draw back to their identity as slaves. That you will always draw back to the um, anchor that determines your perception of your identity. 
And it's in this journey, in this process, that God says, I've got to take you out of Egypt, but now I've got to take you through a systematic journey where I need to release you from the Egypt that is still stuck in you. The reality of that slavery, that notion of slavery, those deep ingrained thoughts that doesn't have the ability to see yourself within the context of liberty, of freedom, I've got to take you through that process. And it's difficult. Because what do we want? We just want to get there. We just want to be there, thinking that if I move from A to B, everything will be good. And God says, no. (laughs) Going from A to B, I've got to get rid of every ingrained thought pattern that still still keeps you um, uh, stuck in the identity of a slave. So God has a different destination in mind. In their mind, the, the geographical position was the end. In God's perception, a changed heart was the destination. That I want to do something in you. I don't just want to take you there. And it's probably one of the biggest things that we struggle with as Christians when we think about ourselves. How many of you have prayed, God, will you please change their heart? <laughs> Regretted praying that. If only you can change them, then I will be better. But how often have you had the self-awareness to stand in front of a mirror saying, God, what are you busy with in my life? What are the things that you need to shift? What are the things that you need to change in me? Because I can see that you're taking me along a different route. I can see that you're taking me the long way. So that means that you're not taking me in the shortcut because you're afraid that if I go the shortcut, I will face battles and I will vent back to my identity as a slave. So I'm in this long road. I'm in this longer route because you believe that it's good for me. It's actually something that will save me. It's actually something that will free me. So how often have we had the self-awareness just sitting in that position, looking at ourselves saying, God, this is you. And it's not them that has to change it. Me. I've got to take the responsibility to look into the mirror saying, God, I want to allow you to start shifting things in me. See, there's um, (laughs) that realization that sometimes the shortest way is the long way. (laughs) And God wasn't done with this. In in Numbers 21 verse um, 1 to 5, God actually takes them through another longer way journey where the Israelites at that point just came to Moses saying, okay, we've had it there. Now you're taking us through another um, detour. And at that point, God just said to them, trust me, walk with me. That actually brought them to a place where they could enter the promised land from the, from the south side to enter through Jericho. That was a much more strategic position to take the promised land from. So there's, there's, there's an understanding from God's side that He sees something that is completely different to what we see. See, we see what is right in front of us right now. And we want to see this shifted and this moved. But God has... Um, the gift and the ability to see the bigger picture. And it's in that moment that we realize that the Lord often leads us not according to the needs of our hearts, 
or the Lord often leads us according to the needs of our hearts, not according to the desires of our heart. That what we want and what we need are two very different things. Because God sees a different picture. It's little moments that my kids come to me every time we go to Coles, Woolworths, Aldi, whatever. What's the first thing they ask? Daddy, I want a piece of broccoli, please. <laughs> Never. Every time, every time they see a McDonald's, a Hungry Jack's, guess what they ask? Can we have a slushy, please? It's, without fail. Guess what my answer is? Sometimes yes, most of the times no. Because if I give them the desire of their heart every time, I'll smash them. I'll feed them stuff that will destroy them later on. So as dad, I've got to realize that there's a bigger picture in their journey, and I've got to make decisions based on their actual needs, their actual well-being, not what they want in the moment. So God sees something different. The Father sees the fear buried in our heart, and the quick and easy, easy way, God sees that the quick and easy way would actually be the most dangerous way to take you through. So just for a moment, just think about it. <laughs> Some of the needs, some of the wounds, some of the areas in your life that you felt, God, just take me out of this, please. So ask yourself the question, how long have you been praying the wrong prayer? <laughs> of just take me out of this. Because actually, God has in Christ. We've been relocated. But now there's a journey that God says, I'm going to take you that way. Because I want to deal with the quality of what sits in your heart. A few needs that we've got to consider in, um, in where we are is the first one. I don't like to say it, but it's real. That we've got to grapple with victory over sin. Sin, probably two quick definitions, the inability to see myself as God sees me and the actions that flows out of that. The fact that I don't have the perception of my life that God has about me, so I think that I've got to do whatever I need to do to satisfy me, creates sin habits, sin attitudes, sin addictions. And I know in church sometimes we, um, we've fallen so deeply into what we think grace means that we don't realize that grace is still the best thing to deal with sin in our heart. Grace confronts sin. It never skips over, skips over it. And there's a part in this journey that some of us are sitting here realizing that I've got to deal with sin in my heart. And it's been there for many years. It's habits, it's ingrained attitudes, it's ingrained paradigms, and it results in destructive um, behaviors. Not only destructive to you, but destructive to those around you. And you've got to deal with that. Paul comes in, in, in Romans <laughs> Uh, 7 verse 21, and he speaks about the, the issue. He says, I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in the law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That there's these attitudes, these um, habits, these addictions that brings me to a place that I actually feel that I'm a prisoner in my own life, in my own body, in my own mind. I feel trapped. 
He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then this incredible promise. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That there is a process of deliverance that God wants to take you through that will speak into this conflict between the good and the evil. That brings you to a place where God wants the freedom that He has always promised you to be an internal reality, not just a spoken reality in our life. So victory over sin. The second one is healing from wounds. Um, simply defined as negative events that have happened either through what others have done to you or just bad situations. So some people have purposely acted out against you and you're sitting in a space of rejection. Could it be divorce, negative experiences, tragedies, sometimes just words. And it's, it's wounded you deeply. The incredible thing is that the enemy loves the foothold that re relational rejection creates. That he's a master at taking those moments and working in them. So relational trouble opens the door to the enemy in our life. Again, just think about your own journey. How many of you sitting here is still working through words and wounds from people that loved you or you thought they loved you? And I just want to say they did. <laughs> but sometimes the way people act out towards us creates wounds. And then there's the other side, just some people that didn't have any love, didn't, didn't have any notion of what healthy, healthy relational living needs to be, and they wounded you intentionally. And we're sitting in that space. We're sitting in the space where either intentionally or unintentionally, we were wounded. And that creates a foothold. That creates a doorway where the enemy comes in and he just keeps you stuck. Keeps you in that moment. So Paul comes in Ephesians 4. He says uh, in verse 26, he says, Don't sin by letting anger control you. He says, Don't let the sun go down when you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the enemy. So things that happen to you, either through your own doing, you sinning, or things that happen to you because of other people acting in the wrong way. But in all of this, there's still a promise of deliverance. Now one of the things that I, want, <laughs> I think is critical is in our vision movements, the knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, and making a difference, it's the easiest to skip over this one, to move from knowing God to discovering purpose. But you'll see, if you don't give God the ability and the opportunity to do a deep work when it comes to you finding freedom in Christ, you will never move on from the navel-gazing that most Christians experience. Their only reality will be my life and what is still broken in me. And one of the surefire ways that you can know that there is still a deep work of deliverance needed in your life is the fact that you, lo you lose hope and expectation in where you are right now. That there's an inability to see a future past this point. So there's a hopelessness, a discouragement, and a disappointment that's just been ingrained in who you are because of the lack of freedom. A free person expects, hopes, has a completely different view of life because they're empowered to dream. 
it's not just about my brokenness, it's about what I can bring to the world around me. And I want you to hear these words. God promises freedom. He promises deliverance. He promises the fact that He can do something in you that you nor any other thing can do for yourself. A healing that will reconstruct the inner world of who you are to the point that you would see yourself as free and liberated in Christ. That's the promise. So Paul takes us through a journey, walking through um, these, this promise, knowing that God has more promises for you in the purpose and praise component. He goes in to Romans 8 verse 1 and 2. He says, so remember just after 7, he says, so now... There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. And because you belong to Him, the power, of the, life, the, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you, has delivered you, has set you free from the power of sin that leads to death. He takes it a step further. He says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, think about sinful things. So things that keep us stuck in a lesser opinion of what God has in mind for us. So you won't grapple with the identity of a son. You'll still be stuck in the identity of a slave. He says, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now, now we, we get very, very technical about these things. Well, I still believe that the most important thing that we need to acknowledge as, as Christians is the fact that we access life by faith, not by performance. There's some of you sitting here thinking, okay, but how do I allow the Spirit to move in me? You know how. Just saying, God, I want to thank you that there's moments in my life that I'm clueless. I don't know what to do. So right now, reading that scripture, I realize that your Spirit could release me from the sinful nature. So I want to pray, God, help me know what it means for your spirit to bring life and peace to me. In Jesus' name, amen. That's faith. That's believing that God can do something in me that I can't do for myself. If you're thinking, how do I allow the spirit and what's the steps? It's not faith. It's coming to a point in your life where you read stuff like that saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need your spirit to breathe life in me to help me move from sin to life. It's as easy as that. And then to trust God that He will do it in the moments that arises. That He'll take you the long way, but it's on this longer journey that you'll realize that He's working a salvation in you, bringing you to a place where His Spirit is actually alive in you. Now, one of the things that um, we do well as Christians um, is the fact that we are brilliant, especially in the Western world, to think about my relationship with God. And we separate it from our relationship with God. So I want to make a comment this morning. <laughs> I don't think it's possible to live in freedom if you live in isolation. Can I say that again? I don't think it's possible to live in freedom if you choose isolation as a way of life. So, so many of us 
um, are trusting God for the freedom that life brings. And that freedom is not going to happen between you and God alone. It's actually going to happen between you, God, and others. Because there's a part of life that other people see as blind spots in your life that they're going to help you with. And sometimes not in the perfect way, but they will help you. <laughs> Realize that you need that kind of intervention. So relationships are key to moving from salvation to a true experience of deliverance in your life. It makes sense um, if you have an issue. Do we all walk onto the public platform saying, hey guys, I've got an issue, will you help me with this? We don't do that. We go to people we trust and people we know. Because that's where we deal with stuff. And I reckon that principle has been embedded in Scripture from the very beginning. Listen to what Proverbs 28 verse um, 13 says. He says, He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So the easy way out is, now is to say, yes, I'm going to confess my sins to God. So guess what we do? <laughs> we go into a room, close the door, and God, I confess my sins. And, and, and I think it's the right thing to do because 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will, what? Forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What are we promised when we confess to God? Forgiveness. Look at this. What are we promised when we confess to one another? It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Different reality. Completely different story. It's a story that actually finds um, its premise on, on the basis that we are living in accountable relationships. That we invite accountability in the way that we're living our life. For so many of us, we've wanted the freedom that God promises, not realizing that that freedom is only available when you allow yourself to be vulnerable and open. And that's risky. <laughs> because what happens if they do this with that information? It's part of the context of a broken world. But the bigger question that you've got to ask yourself is how do you actually walk into relationships, accountable relationships, where people have that kind of love for you and that kind of embrace of you? That's, that's the question that we've got to ask. Now, I've got a few quick steps that I think is critical um, for that. Could surprise you, because we've been speaking about one for quite some time. How do we actually move into relationships that invites accountability? Well, the Bible speaks about one. Um, says, when you come to a point of salvation, what's the next thing you do? You are baptized. What does baptism do? It's a public confession saying to people, I am now associating myself with who I am in Christ. And I'm doing this in a public way because I want you to hold me accountable. That if you see things in my life that doesn't reflect the one that I'm identifying with, I want you to come and speak to me. I want you to come and help me. Uh, Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were 
baptized. Acts um, 8 verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Acts 8 verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. There's this whole experience of belief that is followed by a public confession saying this is who I am and this is who I want to be and I'm welcoming this family, this community into my life saying um, if you see anything in me, I want to be held accountable. Now there's a lot of us sitting here thinking <laughs> that is so far removed from my experience of church. And you're right. Because Western society has conditioned us to the fact that church has become a consumerist thing. We come on Sunday mornings, we share only the good, polished, Western kind of stuff, we wear our best clothes, and we never speak about the stuff that actually sits deep in our being. We don't have relationships where we have the ability to say, hey, I'm struggling with porn. I'm addicted to that. Anger's got a foot all over my life. I'm constantly depressed, and I don't have the ability to move through that space. We don't have that kind of relationships. We've got to ask ourselves, is that what God wants for us? Or does He want us to move into close, life-giving connections that has the ability to draw you to a point of freedom? The second one is small groups. That probably one of the things that we will pursue hard in this church is the fact that we believe that every person should be in a life-giving small group. I want to say the easy way out of life-giving small groups is, no, we just want a, a solid Bible study. We just want to chat about information. There's a lot of ways of getting information into your life, and I believe that it's not the worst thing to do. It's good. It's good gaining deeper Bible knowledge. But that's not what I'm speaking about right now. Some of us don't need more knowledge. We need more accountability. We need environments where we can open our lives, we can, where we can say, hey, help, I'm stuck. I know that, and I'm living this. How do I bridge the gap between the two? How do I get to a place where I'm not trying to be so polished and so perfect in everything that I'm doing? I need help. So small groups need to be built around quality, deep relationships, not just around information. But it's the ability to come and say, help. Now, I want to make sure that you guys are hearing what I'm saying. We're going into an information-driven small group journey from Tuesday, knowing God through the Gospels. I'm not against that. I'm saying somewhere in your life you need more than that. Because information doesn't save. It's the ability to open your life to give God a foothold into the areas that the enemy has dominated your experience. That brings true salvation. And the last one is um, just live on mission. Um, sometimes the best thing that you can do for you is not to think about you. The most positive thing that you can do for you is to get outside of you. It's to just get moving. Do something for someone else. Identify a need. Meet it. And that's what this church family is all about. And if, you don't, if you're not connected, we want to invite you. Join this church. Um, but part of our journey will be a journey where we will live on mission. 
to move beyond ourselves. So three things. Consider the public expression of your faith. Your faith is not your little private thing between you and God. It's never been that. Nothing in the Bible actually communicates that. Faith is never a private little thing. Faith is always something that God positions to posture for influence. So if you're still in that mode, shift. And what some of you need to consider just what that means. Second step, consider joining small groups. And if you don't know what to do, go and sign up. Do something about it. Third thing, get beyond yourself. Do something. But don't just fall into the trap of living for yourself. You'll get stuck. And being stuck in yourself is the worst possible place to be. Because there's no way out. You don't have the ability to save yourself. You need a savior. So I want to ask you to think about these things this morning. Um, Where do you need more than salvation? Where are you trusting God for deliverance? Could be victory over sin. It could be the healing of wounds that have been leaking energy, leaking passion, leaking peace in your life for so long. This morning I want you to hear that promise. It's not just a promise that I will save you. It's a promise that I will deliver you. And sometimes that deliverance takes the long road. But it's still a God that loves you, that wants to take you through that journey. Just for a moment, I'm going to ask uh, maybe if our um, helpers can come forward and just hand out the communion, the emblems. Um, I want to ask you to take a moment this morning. Just going to have soft music in the background. This is something very personal between you and God that needs to take a next step after today into a relational journey. But just for the time being, I want you to take the emblems um, and just hold on to them for a moment and just ask yourself the question. Where do I need deliverance? Where, where do I need God to deliver me in my life? Just pause it at that. about the question, where do you need deliverance in your life?
On the night Jesus was betrayed, he um, took bread, looked at his disciples and said, this is my body. He said, take it, eat it in remembrance of me. After the crucifixion, something very interesting happens where the proclamation over our lives isn't the fact that a piece of bread resembles his body, but that we resemble his body. That us as people, we become an expression of the body of Christ. That even in that notion, the fabric of connection, relationship, um, that sense of belonging is communicated. That every time we come together thinking about what Christ did for us, it's that understanding that He sacrificed His body to the point that we now become the expression of who He is. I want to ask you to take the piece of bread this morning. Just think about the fact that His body was broken for you so that you don't have to be broken. That freedom and deliverance is part of the promise for you. So let's eat together, just thanking Him for the freedom that He gives us. In the same way, Jesus took a cup of wine. And we spoke about the fact that that was one of the four cups, but promised that this wine resembled his blood. And that blood brings life and healing to all of us. So I want to ask you, let's drink together and thank God for the fact that his body and his blood was sacrificed so that we could have life and the fulfillment of what life brings. Let's drink together. Before we go into the last song of worship, I want to ask you to keep your eyes closed just, just for a second. If you're at a place where you know that you've been saved, that there was a definite moment of salvation in your life, um, but you also know that there's areas in your life where you're not free. So you've been saved, but you still need deliverance. You still need that experience of God setting you free from the identity of slavery, sometimes even the identity of sinfulness. And you just want this morning to be a point of reference of saying, God, I need deliverance. Don't you just want to raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Many, many hands um, this morning, people just saying, God, I need to be delivered. So I want to ask you just if you're sitting there, just keep your hand raised. I just want to include you in a point of prayer this morning. God, I want to thank you for moments in our life where you speak to us. Moments, Lord, where you reveal to us something of your desire. And in that moment, Lord, we're confronted with the reality of our life and the reality of what you see. One of those things this morning, is, Lord, is the fact that you've promised us deliverance. You've promised the fact that you want to bring us to a point where freedom becomes a part of our inward journey. 
And Lord, we've got people here this morning just with their hands raised, just saying that we aren't experiencing that freedom in our own life. We're still stuck in either sin or wounds. And Lord, they raise their hands just to invite you to come and do a work in their life. So Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I want to pray that the promise of deliverance will be a promise that would be realized in their life right now in the name of Jesus. I want to pray, Lord, whatever the area, whether it be sin or wounds, God, that your spirit will move deeply in their lives right now and that you would bring a release at this moment. But also, Lord, an ongoing release of helping them work out what deliverance means in the next steps of their life. I want to thank you, Lord, that every promise is yes and amen. That the promise of deliverance isn't something for the future. It's a reality that you're giving us right now. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to say that if you need prayer in, in, 